earthly life. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As we reflect on marriage, we recall how before the foundation of the world, God loved people and wants to be united with people, the Creator with creatures. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want to dwell with man, man in God's image. And this takes on a variety of forms. And as God sets about making a creation that's going to reflect this love of His and catechize us into this love of His, which He has from our, from our beginning all the way onto the ages of ages, He wants to express and show this love to us. And so He creates a world in which there is man and woman, and these two, while one, are separated from each other and then brought back into union with one another. So, so woman is taken from man, and the two are united back into one flesh and holy matrimony. You can think of the analogy there between God creating man, and then which is separate and distinct, and then bringing man back into union with him. And of course, from marriage, then comes family life, comes uh, children, God willing, and then you have the parental relationship and the, the varied expressions of love within that relationship. And all of these then become real life catechesis for who God is before the foundation of the world, what God had in mind before the foundation of the world. And so what a joy and privilege it is to, to look at these things. Now, to be sure, in this fallen world, sin has tainted and made all, uh, tainted all of this, made all of this very difficult and very challenging. Um, some marriages are very uh, easy and enjoyable relative to other marriages, which are very much cruciform and challenging and difficult. And so we, we experience the whole gambit here. And what we need to do individually in our circumstances is recognize God's hand that even what we work for evil or have done for evil, he intends to use for good. We need to see his molding and shaping hand and how the very vocations that he institutes, um, husband and wife, father and children, masters and slaves, these, these vocations are meant to be an attack and an assault on the old Adam within us. And they are meant to grow and strengthen or at least give opportunity to grow and strengthen the new man in us. So what we want to see is we want to see God's hand. We want to see God's design. And we want to see and understand that, that marriage and family life aren't just, you know, well, God was bored and so he created things this way, but he could have created things another way if he wanted and, you know, entirely contrary if he wanted. It's not really true. As any artist expresses himself or herself in the art, so too with God. And so it written into creation itself is an expression of who he is and his love and intentions for mankind. And then we want to see that even after the fall into sin and even after these vocations sometimes become very, very difficult. Sometimes they even fail. 
the, the relationship between husband and wife fails the, uh, because of sin. The relationship between father and children or mother and children fail because of sin. Um, slave and master, employer and employee, these fail because of sin. Even so, even, be, even though we have worked evil and even though these things have, have failed, God graciously forgives us through the blood of his son Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. And then designs these things to draw us to him so that we can receive absolution and be bound to him in his forgiving love. And then also, also entrust, entrust that even where we have done evil and broken things that God would not have broken, he will use that evil for good and he will shape and form us in a way that's going to uh, benefit us, not only in this life, but for all eternity. And maybe even, maybe even a better case is to be made for all eternity. He's, in many respects, when we reach the end of this life, we're still in seed form, and that seed gets tucked into the earth, buried into the, into the ground, and will be resurrected on the last day, will be, we'll be brought forth and spring forth as a new and beautiful plant. And so there's a sense in which we don't, we don't yet even know what will be, and we might simply experience this life as, as not resolved and no benefit gained and that kind of thing. But that remains to be seen. It's no different than tucking a seed into the ground. That will, on the last day, be seen, what it was that God was working in us. Okay, so I just wanted to give some general comments in terms of uh, marriage and maybe summarize to some extent where we've been or at least um, what the groundwork is underneath uh, Chrysostom's homilies. And we left off on page 77 looking at the tail end of homily 12. He's been reminding us of the, the sacred aspect of marriage and how God so highly adorns marriage that it's the relationship in the context with, through which he brings everlasting souls into existence. And then he's contrasting that very powerfully with, <laughs> with how lewdly we celebrate it and how frivolously we celebrate it. And of course, we is, is hilarious because, you know, he's writing almost you know, 1,500 years ago and... I guess there's nothing new under the sun. Marriages have always been celebrated poorly. And uh, so he's, he's critiquing that to his, his audience, saying, hey, look, if it's, this, if it's this sacred, beautiful, blessed expression of God and manifestation of life, etc., etc., why, why are we adorning it with all of this garbage? Right. Okay, well, we'll finish up this homily and move on to the next. So page 77 middle of the page. Chrysostom writes, Many are indifferent to what goes on at wedding celebrations, but great evil is the result. Looseness and disorder prevail. Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor silly talk, nor levity. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths. What I ask you goes on at weddings. All of this and more. For evil talk has become an art, and those who excel in it are applauded. Sins have become an art. We pursue them not by chance, but with studied earnestness. And finally, the, de <laughs> and finally the devil assumes control of his own troops. 
When drunkenness arrives, chastity departs. Where there is filthy talk, the devil is always eager to make his own contribution. Do you celebrate Christ's mystery with entertainment like this by inviting the devil? I am sure now that I have offended you. You mock me when I rebuke you and say I am too austere. This is only another proof of your perverted manner of life. Could you imagine hearing a sermon like this? I mean, this is pretty forward, isn't it? Back and forth. I don't know. I don't know how this would go over today in America. I am sure I have now offended you, Chrysostom writes. You mock me when I rebuke you and say I am too austere. This is only another proof of your perverted manner of life. Don't you remember St. Paul's words? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or the psalmist, when he said, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in Him with trembling. But your behavior is dishonorable and blasphemous, totally without restraint. Is it not possible for pleasure and intemperance to coexist? Or intemperance to coexist? So, <clears throat> you know, and that's, that's an interesting question. Is it not possible for pleasure and temperance to coexist? Of course the answer is yes, but we have a hard time finding that, don't we? He continues, Are you fond of music? I would prefer that you love silence best of all. But if you must have songs, choose edifying ones, not satanic ones. Instead of dancing girls, invite the choir of angels to your wedding. But how can we see them, you ask? If you drive away the other things, Christ himself will come to your wedding. And where Christ goes, the angel's choir follows. If you ask him, he will work for you an even greater miracle than he worked in Cana. That is, he will transform the water of your unstable passions into the wine of spiritual unity. But remember, if he should come and find the musicians in the crowd making a tumult, he will expel them all before working his wonders. And uh, the editor here sees a reference to Matthew 9.23. What is more disgusting than these pomps of the devil? There is so much noise that nothing can be heard. When any words are audible, they are meaningless, shameful, and disgusting. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, very interesting. This, um, this phrase, maybe I'll draw this out if I haven't already in this text, but just make comment. The church fathers very frequently referred to the pomp of the devil. And in fact, in the baptismal renunciation, I forget exact, do you renounce, um, do you renounce the devil? Yes, I renounce him. Do you renounce all his works? Yes, I renounce them. Do you renounce all his ways? Um, in one of those questions, it used to be inserted the old language of, um, do you renounce his pomp? What is, what is pomp? Well, you can think of the word pompous, right? Um, arrogant, puffed up, the sort of uh, in-your-face lust for life um, kind of attitude. What would be examples in our culture, do you think, of the pomp of the devil? And I'm thinking broader here than, um, broader here than weddings. What do you think? Oh, great. Oh, the pomp and circumstance. Yes, the, yeah, right, right. Of a celebration, I've always perceived it to be on the good side, but this 
This has a different, has the opposite. Yeah. So pomp can be a neutral word. It can also mean, it can also mean as you pointed out, celebration. Mm-hmm. What, would be the, what would be some examples of the, the pomp or celebration? that You, you mentioned um, Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood. I think music. Um, popular music, Hollywood, movies, um, the big, the great big spectacle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what reminds me most of it is uh, springtime at the river with the huge ski boat. Oh yeah. Music blaring. Yep. Yep. Spring break. Spring break in all its many and various forms. The pomp of the devil. Loud, loud music, lewdness, too much, too much alcohol flowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes you can see the, the pomp of the, of the devil around sporting events, too, where people are, you know, fanatics, if you think of that word a little more deeply, fanatics. Halftime show. So, halftime show, oh yeah, which increasingly is like not rated PG anymore, you know. I don't know how, how long ago it was. I'm probably dating myself. I try not to watch that thing anyway. Um, yeah, okay, so we have examples, um, but it's very, it's very helpful for us to think of then the baptismal renunciation of renouncing the pomp of the devil, all his works and all his ways is how we would think of it, but then to identify those and to then actively consciously think to ourselves, how do I reject that? Does that mean we can't watch a sporting game or listen to a secular song or something like that? No, I don't, I don't think it goes quite that far, but... Is there, a, is there a way in which um, we can be absorbed and swallowed up into those things that is unhealthy for us as Christians, where we're not drawing any line in the sand? Yeah, absolutely. And one manifestation of that is in the context of what we would call wedding receptions. You know, Of course, there wasn't this clean break between the wedding service and the wedding reception that there so often is these days, um, at least in the church there is, um, much more like wedding and reception party all in one. Uh, So to keep, to try to identify the the pomp of the devil, the celebrations of the devil, and keep them out of something so sacred, that seems to be Chrysostom's thesis here. And it's worth us us considering, it's worth us thinking along those lines and trying to identify what is the the pomp of uh, the devil. All right, any thoughts you have or questions or comments before we move on? Yes, yes please. Oh, do we have a microphone? Oh, perfect. Can we, uh, yeah, uh, all the way in the back here. So I just wondered, like, what would be the proper way to celebrate without the pomp? Or Yeah, yeah, great question. I, just absolute <laughs> silence. It's not, it's not austerity. It's just a lack of smiling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no smiles allowed, no no music, no joy. No, that's not it. That's not it. I think, I think to give a really concrete but you know, kind of easy and canned answer, admittedly, I think it would be divine service. I think, to, I think the old practice of, of having uh, the wedding be not unlike uh, baptisms, not unlike um, even something like, like we do, the, uh, the installation of congregational officers, um, not unlike confirmation, the rite of confirmation, uh, to have 
to have this w the wedding recognized as a liturgical rite that takes place in the context of divine service, which divine service, of course, if you've, at least if you've been to a divine service here at Faith, they can be a ruckus good time. Now, not by worldly definitions, perhaps, but the hymns are joyful, the word proclaimed is joyful, the liturgy is, is filled with exuberance and celebration, it's festive, it's beautiful, there's, um, there, there's, uh, you know, lights. Sooner or later, maybe we'll have incense a little more widespread. So there's going to be lights and sound. We already have music. We have preaching. We have proclamation. We have rejoicing. We have back and forth um, worship and celebration. So I think that I think that to try to you know again paint kind of an easy picture, that would be the that would be a much more ideal context. A context that Chrysostom would argue for that I. I would argue for would be a much healthier, more representative expression of what marriage itself is. And then no reception. Well, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think I think in our context. Now you may find that you may find this a little nerdy, and I'm certainly not making a law. I'm not saying this is how. But if I had to sort of pastorally picture what my, what I think an ideal would be, it would be we'll have the reception right after right after that service and have it just be filled with joy. And if, and if you want music in the background, have music in the background. But part of, um, part of what's happened in American culture, of course, is that the, the wedding it takes place in late afternoon or early evening, and then the reception takes place well into the night, usually served with dinner. And then there's usually a lot of alcohol. And it, it may not be this way for older guests, but I know for younger guests, particularly single guests, it's viewed as an opportunity to uh, have a mating ritual and then enact that if, if one is fortunate enough. That, that has become such a standard trope and way of perceiving things. Um, there's countless movies <laughs> you know, depicting this very thing. So, so I, think, I think to myself, as a pastor, you know, how could we as Christians shape a different, a different expression, of, a, more, a more fitting expression of what marriage is? And I think, of, I think of the divine service and a godly reception during the day where there's joy and joyful music. And it doesn't have to be, um, doesn't have to be like right out of the Lutheran hymnal, um, the music. It can, you know, it can be secular music. I don't see a problem with that as such. But it's, it's not lewd in and of itself, and it's not designed to be this, whole, just this sort of sinful revelry and possibility for debauchery. Now, am I, am I really pushing hard against culture here? Of course. Of course. I mean, it's, um, I understand it's very un unpopular and may not be even in our context in some respects uh, realistic, but... Um, Maybe no more so than Chrysostom. He seems to likewise be kind of spitting into the wind. Yeah, it's still worth doing. <laughs> Any other thoughts before we, uh, we get back to Chrysostom? Okay. So we left off on uh, page 78, the bottom paragraph. There is nothing more pleasurable than virtue, nothing sweeter than orderliness, nothing more honorable than dignity. Those who celebrate weddings such as this will find true pleasure. But pay attention now to what is required for such a marriage. First, look for a husband 
who will really be a husband and protector. Remember that you are placing a head on a body. When your daughter is to be married, don't look for how much money a man has. Don't worry about his nationality or his family's social position. All these things are superfluous. Look instead for piety, gentleness, wisdom, and the fear of the Lord, if you want your daughter to be happy. Priceless words. Priceless words. Because, I mean, and, and again, I'm, I'm not intentionally, I'm not saying any of this to intentionally like, offend anyone, or, or specifically offend anyone, maybe. But, but what is that? What is the average sort of like, American dad's view towards the marriage of his daughters. That's kind of like, well, do you have a job? Do you really love her? Okay, good enough. You know, that's about it. That's about it. Uh, that, that's impoverished. You know, that's impoverished. And I'm not, I'm not like sitting on a high horse. Like, I'm suggesting that we, we drink in Chrysostom's wisdom and imbibe that and inculcate that in ourselves and in the, the males we know all the way down the line, including and especially those who are uh, uh, young men, um, you know, who, who are going to, uh, you know, who are going to be approaching marriage. Like, this is, this is who you want to be. All the way up to fathers who are going to give away their daughters in marriage. This is who you want to marry your daughter off to. And then all the way up to the elders um, and, uh, of, of, the, of the male gender or sex. Um, just to inculcate these principles that what is really of value are these virtues. Piety, gentleness, wisdom, fear of the Lord. Yeah. Okay, so um, Chrysostom giving us here some priceless guidance, and I know uh, guidance that many of us, many of us did not receive. Okay, can, he continues on. If you insist on her marrying a wealthy man, you are hurting her, not helping her. He will treat her like a slave because she comes from a family poorer than his. Instead, she should marry a man whose financial condition is the same as hers. This is just super practical advice, by the way. Almost worse, given our cultural differences, is if a male marries a female with a lot of money, uh, much more money than him, because the whole hierarchy and power structure that revolves around money as it does in our context is, is turned upside down. Now it's this obstacle that has to be overcome. That takes a very, very saintly woman to say, hey, ev everything I have and will inherit, I put in underneath you and your authority, and it's now yours to do with what you will. Oh, that's a rare woman. Good luck. Good luck. Um, no different than in, in Chrysostom's context, it would be a, a rare man who would have all of this wealth and all of the societal power structure stacked in his favor and not treat his uh, wife as a slave. And that's precisely his point. So, yes, sir. Yes, sir. What would he think about prenups? <laughs> I know. What would he think? Okay, so prenups is, is, a, is a, it's a, as I understand, it's a fairly late invention. Because 
what, what prenups functionally take the place of is what society as a whole used to do, or at least the family units as a whole used to do, and that is make divorce unthinkable, um, socially unthinkable. And so now, now in lieu of that, you've got to have uh, this sort of financial thing to grab a hold of. And um, the wisdom then, since prenups have come into existence, the wisdom of the church has been, they're inherently wrong because you're saying, hey, this is mine and um, this is yours. Or this is mine and then this is ours that will be divided. And that kind of selfishness is inimical to what marriage is. We've heard Chrysostom teach earlier, you know. So I think, I think on the surface he would be absolutely against it. And he would say, uh, no, how can, you, how can you sign a prenup? Everything that you are and have, you're giving to another. And everything they are and have, they're giving to you. And there is there is." Now, I think a little bit more interesting, Bob, is, is in our context, and I don't want to go on the whole diatribe here, but in our context, I think things are very different. And I myself have sort of switched perspectives a bit on this, and I'm not sure that prenups are such a bad idea. Here's why. Everything in our context is so wildly tilted in favor of the female, outrageously tilted in, in favor of the female, um, such that such that men, young men, are recognizing this and refusing to marry, because it is literally what do I? I mean, just th- just think as I put yourself into the shoes of an of a late teen, early twenty-something young man. What do you have to gain in marriage? Nothing. You, the second you're married, half of what you have and make it can be taken away from you for nothing, and there's nothing you can do about it. What's, what's the incentive there? What's the incentive there? We have disincentivized marriage as a society. So how do you re-incentivize that? How do you work against that power structure which is so flipped on its head in our country where um, in terms of marital rights and who gets the children and how the, how the wealth breakdown goes in, case, in the situation of a divorce, it's so wildly tilted in the favor of the, of the woman. Um, how do you mitigate that? And now all of a sudden a prenup isn't this inherently or inimically wrong concept in our context. It's, it's, some, it's something to be considered. That's as far as I'll go. It's something to be considered. We, yeah, we've made a mess. We've made such a mess. It's not healthy for people to marry at late 30s. It's just not. You're very, very set in your ways. <laughs> very, very set in your ways. And then people wonder why it doesn't work. Um, yeah. But what have we done as a society? We, we're an inherently selfish society. And so we've just formed marriage around selfishness. You know, it's just this idea of like, you need to get out there and you know, get your education, your career, your world travels, your living it up, all your sexual partners, all your exploration. And then when you're good and spent and done and you've debauched and done everything the world has to offer, then settle down and get married. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a disaster. That's a disaster. Uh-huh. Remember when uh, Rosie the Riveter came into vogue? <laughs> ah. 
the mother was taken out of the household, and the uh, and there was a, a, a working against. I want to suggest the father's leadership. I, I still look. I'm old-fashioned in this way, maybe. Yes, not maybe. So be it. Mm -hmm. The fathers have had a diminishing of their position. And I am saying to all the men in America, have courage. Yeah. I say it to my, my sons, my grandsons. Let's look at this again and, and see what the end result is. I'm, I'm not pleased. I was a woman who worked out of the house all of my, uh, all of my life. Mm -hmm. But there, there still is a call for the for the women to be respectful of the leadership of manhood. Mm -hmm. I, from my viewpoint, it is through scripture. I'm, I'm not able to drop a, a verse right now, but it is, uh, the, it is the better thing for the wife and the children to have strong leadership, godly leadership, mm -hmm. based on the word of God, to be, um, saying, let's, let's have conversation about this. Yeah. And I'm going to use the word again. What is the end result of our approaching the next phase of our life with this cavalier? Um, I'm, you know, I am, I am so in opposition to what the women of today are. I just, I see it as counterproductive to America's future. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I, I think that as this becomes the, the standard and the norm societally, I mean, it already has been, but as this really sinks in, we're going to see some rebellion against this. One of, one of my favorite lines from a, a recent country western song, the most outlaw thing I've ever done is give a good woman a ring. <laughs> right? Because it's completely contrary to society's expectations. You know that you, why? Why on earth would you? Why on earth would you get married? So, so there's this, there's this great subversive thing we can inculcate in our young man. Don't give in to the passivity, which is which is man's nature, to be passive, to be docile, to be self-interested. Um, don't give in to this. Uh, become the man God made you to be, and and be strong and take leadership and of yourself over and against the societal pressures and then over your family and buck these trends and love it because God will be with you and he'll support you and um, those of us who recognize what the young people are doing we will support in every way we can too so yeah thank you for those comments right right yeah I mean I all of this all of this of course plays right into man's weakness too the the sort of feminized culture and matriarchal undercurrents we have play into man's weakness because man's just like in that circumstance he just plays video games watches pornography hopes to retire to his recliner <laughs> that's like that's ma the male's response to this is like okay I'll I'll just be a putz, literally just sit here and be passive. And that's a, I mean, that is a terrible, terrible, easy for you to say, I'm trying to say 
emasculation. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a terrible emasculation. Um, and one that we willingly go into unless we're willing to stand and, and fight against ourselves and against society. Okay. So, very top of 79 is where we left off with Chrysostom's advice that uh, two young people when they're getting married, you know, you want to, you want to have um, similar financial condition. Can, financial condition is the same as hers, Chrysostom says, or even, even a woman who is poorer, that is, if your desire is to give your daughter, yeah, yeah, the daughter is poor. That is, if your desire is to give your daughter to a husband and not to sell her as a slave to your master. I think I had that opposite, sorry. Once more from the top, he will treat her like a slave because he comes from a family, she comes from a family poorer than his. Instead, she should marry a man whose financial condition is the same as hers, or even one who is poor. That is, if your desire is to give your daughter to a husband and not to sell her as a slave to a master. When you are satisfied that the man is virtuous and decide what day they will be married, beseech Christ to be present at the wedding. He is not ashamed to come, for marriage is an image of his presence in the church. Even better than this, pray that your children will each find such a virtuous spouse and trust this concern of yours into his hands. If you honor him in this way, he will return honor for honor. Chrysostom continues, when you prepare for the wedding, don't run to your neighbor's houses borrowing extra mirrors or spend endless hours worrying about dresses. A wedding is not a pageant or a theatrical performance. Instead, make your house as beautiful as you can and then invite your family and your neighbors and friends. All right, so Chrysostom's viewing this taking place at home. Invite as many people as you know that have good character and they will be content with what you set before them. Don't hire bands or orchestras. Such an expense is excessive and unbecoming. Before anything else, invite Christ. Do you know how to invite him? Whatsoever you do, in the, you do to the least of these, my brothers, he said, you do to me. Don't think that it is annoying to invite the poor for Christ's sake. Don't adorn the bride with golden ornaments, but dress her modestly. Thus, from the beginning of her married life, she will shun excess. Let there be no disorderly uproar. When everything is ready, call the bridegroom to receive the virgin. Let there be no drunkenness at the banquets and suppers, but an abundance of spiritual joy. Think of the many good things that will result from weddings like this. The way most weddings, if we can even call them weddings, and not spectacles, are celebrated nowadays, ends in nothing but evil. As soon as the banquet is over, the bride's mother has to worry whether anything she has borrowed has been lost or broken. Whatever pleasure she may have had is replaced with distress when she sees what disarray her house is in. So when Christ is present at a wedding, he brings cheerfulness, pleasure, moderation, modesty, sobriety, and health. But Satan brings anxiety, pain, excessive expense, indecency, envy, and drunkenness. Let us remember all these things and avoid such evils that we may please God and be counted worthy to obtain the good things he has promised to those who love him through the grace and love for mankind of our Lord Jesus Christ.
with whom together with the Holy Spirit be glory, honor, and power to the Father, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. All right, so he pulls no punches. We could want, we could want in a sermon as Lutherans, we could want a little more Jesus, a little more forgiveness, um, or at least, at least speaking about God's gracious attitude toward us uh, when we have fallen short. But aside from that, the principles and points, I think, are straightforward and um, are well worth keeping in mind, even if, even if we find Chrysostom's outlook to be too stringent even for our own times or too stringent to be realistic. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but let us, use that to, let us use his wisdom to tilt the pendulum back a little bit in the other direction. Right. Yes, sir. Just an observation. Um, it appears to me that current weddings, maybe the last 50 years that I've watched them, uh, the bride is at the center of it. She, she has dreamed of what her wedding will be like, and she then goes into execution mode, and her chosen husband is, just follows along and does it. And, of course, the bride's father pays for all this, and... Uh, Oh, I, if I can't have that, it's it's not you know and so forth. I mean, it's how in raising a girl, how how can that be? I don't want to say stripped away, but how how can that perspective? The world is telling her she has to have this kind of wedding, a destination wedding with these whatever her dream is. Uh, I don't see the, the future husband having any part in it. He just goes along with it. Mm. You know, so. Which is a terrible parable yes. for how the marriage is going to go. Yes, I was going to say, it, ju it just leads right down the wrong road. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's that? I'm trying to figure this out. I've got a daughter. You put me on the, on the stopwatch here. It's clicking down. I'm getting nervous already. I, I don't know. This is this is what I think, Barry. I think in a when we live in this, um, you know, we're kind of like fish in a fish tank. And when all the when all the water is all of this excess, how do you possibly fight against it? I'm not sure you do as such, but rather if we inculcate in our young women to the best of our ability what the true nature of marriage is, what the tr what the true nature is. This, this is reflecting Christ. This is the most profound amongst the the first article gifts there are because through this comes life and here's your sacred duty and role and here's who you're looking for in a husband and does he fit that sacred duty and role and are you going to work to get each other toward heaven and to your, your children toward heaven and that's the main point in, of all of this. When you inculcate those principles I think you stand a better chance of her seeing that this other stuff is, is um, at best superficial but then maybe some of the excesses in fact clash. And she says, I don't, want that at my, I don't want that at my wedding. I want my wedding to be a sacred day and a holy day and a day that honors my Lord uh, and is a rejoicing in his gifts, right? And then, and then I think we avoid so much of the excesses, you know. So maybe that's, maybe that's the best way to go forward. Minute for minute, it's impossible to catechize our children better than the world does. So we have to undercut that, I think, by going right to the root and to the heart of what these things are. Yeah, typically the, the bride 
prior to her being a bride, she was a bridesmaid in three or four weddings, mm -hmm. paid for $250 dresses and watched those events yep. and said, well, yep. this is how I'm learning and picking and choosing and I want mine to be like exactly. this. Exactly. Now it's my turn. In yeah. fact, there's that thinking. Yeah. In, in fact, oh. the, the throwing of the uh, flowers to the next one that's going to get married. That Kind of weird. Yeah. The more you think about it, and the whole garter thing, where did that begin? That's weird. There's so much weirdness. I mean, and by weirdness, I guess I mean paganness. Um, but there's just so much weirdness in, uh, in popular wedding kind of kind of rites. Very strange. Yeah, I don't. I don't know honestly. That I mean, again, I think uh, to just level with you. I think that Christum's vision is unrealistic. I think the vision that I've expressed, where suddenly all these women are going to want to have their weddings on divine service on Sunday morning and the reception after for brunch, I think it's unrealistic. I think there could be a generational shift. I think, I think it's not unrealistic to pray that this would take place in a, in a generation or two. Um, that's not really my point, or I think the point that we should take away from Chrysostom is, hey, if we aren't, if we aren't where he thinks we ought to be, we've, we've utterly failed and it's all lost. I think, hey, let's, let's use him to identify the issues and to try to think of strategies to like pull the pendulum back, to undercut what society is teaching our, our young women, and to try to, uh, try to bring a little more balance. I think that's more the accurate goal. I, I know there's a microphone. I want to get you both a microphone. Please. The word mutuality runs through this conversation. And I'm thinking, if I were to write a book about family health, it would be, again, I'm, I'm going back to this, the, the dads saying to the little girls from little on, um, I want to I get to know you. I want, I, want, I, want, mm -hmm. I want a certain standard for our family. Yes. Sally Jane, you know. Yes, right. Um, and, and, and not have it as a one-time conversation. It is an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. I've got on my refrigerator a dad um, teaching his son how to fish. And, um, there, and that is that we put that together, the dads and the sons, right? Mm -hmm. But the dads have a profound place with their girls. And ah. it starts from when they're little. Great and, point. And it, ah, it does point. not, and when they come to that time, when they're choosing how costly it's going to be or how within reason it's going to be, the dad already has positioned himself to have made w wise decisions with his girl. I mean, you make that des those decisions when the, when the um, proms at the high school are, uh, events are happening, you have, you have training going on, right. is my only point. Yeah, you're building that trust and yes. that relationship. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I believe that the author of the book is expressing the tradition at that time mm -hmm. that that's what they used to do when, a, when their daughter get married. They get uh, presents and money in exchange. Mm -hmm. So it's the same way, well, right now today's tradition mm -hmm. is what you just you know described how the weddings are right now. But I think these the two uh, examples or, or, or he's just expressing the tradition that what people worldly uh, 
way of celebrating the mm -hmm. or taking advantage of the wedding of the celebration, but it has nothing to do with Christ or mm -hmm. with God. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I, your comment, I mean, it's not directly related, but tangentially, I think, I think sometimes, sometimes you, can, you can make this appeal uh, to children or grandchildren as they're getting married. You know, have a more humble ceremony and whatever, you know, whatever the bride's father is going to pony up for this gigantic thing. Hey, have a more humble ceremony and I'll, and I'll give you, you know, the difference so that you can put it towards a down payment or, you know, towards a car or something necessary. And sometimes, sometimes the more frugal-minded um, will take you up on that, but not always, not always. Yes, sir. Yeah. What about coronavirus? What is that? Has has that changed the way people? Because I know it's a lot of weddings aren't big events like this one is. It's a great question, and I honestly don't know the answer to that. I know I know um, a number of weddings have been postponed uh, during this period, so I don't I don't know. We here at Faith we haven't had any directly affected, to my knowledge. Um, yeah, but it it's good, maybe. Maybe. Maybe it'll tend towards smaller weddings, less of these giant gatherings. Who knows? We'll see. Okay. We've got a few minutes left in this class. Why don't we go ahead and, and jump right into it? By the way, again, um, we're looking at doing Wolfmuller's class, or Wolfmuller's book, sorry. We're uh, some weeks off still. Uh, but that's what's coming up next. So if you haven't picked that up already, you might want to. Um, why has American, or why has... Why has American Christianity failed? Yeah. Why has Christianity in America failed? Which why, is, America why has American Christianity failed? Yeah. yeah, that's what it is. All right. Sermon on marriage. This um, from, uh, yeah, this, so as the, as the editor points out, St. John introduces his sermon with some advice on speaking good words and avoiding evil speech. In pagan books, if anything good happens to be said, most writers hardly utter one healthful word out of many. In the Holy Scriptures, it is quite the reverse. There you never hear any evil word, but everything filled with salvation and great wisdom. Such are the words which have been read to us today. What are they? Concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul says, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, this will be familiar to you, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 2, and a homily he's previously preached. Paul legislates concerning marriage without being ashamed or blushing, and with good reason. His master honored a marriage, and so far from being ashamed of it, adorned the occasion with his presence and his gift. Indeed, he brought a greater wedding gift than any other when he changed the nature of water into wine. How then could his servant blush to legislate concerning marriage? Um, of course, marriage kind of goes in and out of favor over the centuries of Christendom. In some places and times, virginity is so highly extolled to the expense of marriage, even to where people feel like when they're getting married, they be they're becoming second-class Christians or something like that, you can kind of gain a, a hint and a flavor for that of what Christendom's working to do is really balance these two. That, that yes, remaining single and with the gift of the supernatural gift of celibacy 
is, hey, if you've got that available to you, take it. Okay, but if that isn't available to you, then get married, and both are good and God-pleasing ways to go along. So you can see Chrysostom working to balance these two things. Okay, next paragraph on the bottom of 81. Marriage is not an evil thing. It is adultery that is evil. It is fornication that is evil. Marriage is a remedy to eliminate fornication. Let us not, therefore, dishonor marriage by the pomp of the devil. So, follow this logic. If you have the supernatural gift of celibacy, then the scriptures would say, it's better for you to not be married, because you'll be entangled with all of these worldly difficulties when you could just be serving the kingdom of God. Okay. If you don't have that gift, then, then you want to pursue marriage. Okay. Why? Well, at least in part because it is a remedy to the lust which has not been supernaturally removed from you. Okay. Now you can see how if one partner or the other withholds that, how, how it just I, you couldn't have something more destructive to the, to the creation of marriage in this fallen world, right? Because it is given for the remedy and you're removing that remedy for someone who's already admitted they need the remedy and have to have the remedy. So this is where, this is where you know, it's not, and our society kind of laughs and jokes at this, but it's no, it's no laughing and joking matter, and the statistics bear it out that there are a huge percentage of what are you know, sexless marriages or marriages in which one uh, side or the other, the, the male or the female, is, um, is, is not content. And then is there any surprise that that leads to fornication and divorce and all the things we're seeing? So at the, at the root of this problem we're having societally, too, is we need to recover what Chrysostom has preached on before at length. And that is a true understanding of uh, the place of uh, the healthy place and role of sexuality within marriage as a remedy for uh, concupiscence, a remedy for a lack of that supernatural gift of chastity. Uh, or really celibacy is the better word there because the goal is chastity outside of marriage and chastity inside of marriage. Okay, so Chrysostom simply bringing up this point again and, and worth, uh, worth mentioning, worth reiterating. So marriage is a remedy to eliminate fornication. Let us not therefore dishonor marriage by the pomp of the devil. Instead, let those who take wives now do as they did at Cana in Galilee. Let them... Uh, have Christ in their midst. How can they do this? Someone asks. By inviting the clergy. He who receives you, the Lord says, receives me. So drive away the devil. Throw out the lewd songs, the corrupt melodies, the disorderly dances, the shameful words, the diabolical display, the uproar, the unrestrained laughter, and the rest of the impropriety. Bring in instead the holy servants of Christ, and through them Christ will certainly be present along with his mother and his brothers. For he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. I know that some people think I am burdensome and difficult, giving advice like this, and uprooting ancient custom. But I do not care at all about their objections. I do not seek your favor, but your benefit. Oh, oh. Fantastic line. Ah, put that on my tombstone. That, that should be the job of every pastor. That should be the job description right there. So often because of our sinful nature, it's reversed. We seek favor, not benefit. When we should seek benefit, not favor. 
What a line. I do not seek your favor, but your benefit. I do not ask for the applause of praise, but the profit of wisdom. Let no one tell me that this is the custom. Where sin is boldly committed, forget about custom. If evil things are done, even if the custom is ancient, abolish them. If they are not evil, even if they are not customary, introduce them and establish them. Actually, it was not an ancient custom to celebrate weddings in a disgraceful way, but some kind of innovation. That's a true point, isn't it? Um, if you think back to the Bible and, and the different unions between man and woman, they were practiced in holiness. And then somewhere along the line, it got innovated into this pagan idea. So he'll take us on a little tour here. Consider how Isaac married Rebekah, how Jacob married Rachel. Scripture tells us of these weddings and how these brides entered the households of their bridegrooms. Nothing is said about such customs. They gave banquets and dinners more lavish than usual and invited their relatives to the weddings. Flutes, pipes, cymbals, drunken cavorting, and all the rest of our impropriety were avoided. Nowadays, on the day of a wedding, people dance and sing hymns to Aphrodite, songs full of adultery, corruption of marriages, illicit loves, unlawful unions, and many other impious and shameful themes. In fact, I think that it is the case. I would have to dust this off again. So, take, so, so do your research on this one. But I think that the wedding march, you know, here comes the bride, bum, 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 actually comes from a Wagner opera that is sort of based on infidelity of all things. Bah! So that, I mean, it's a little upside down, friends. Um, and for that reason, for that reason, many Lutheran churches don't allow the wedding march. They accompany, Chrysostom continues, they accompany the bride in public with unseemly drunkenness and shameful speeches. How can you expect chastity of her? Tell me, if you accustom her to such shamelessness from the first day. I, this is also, by the way, why um, bachelor and bachelorette parties are like the worst idea imaginable. Yeah. I, it's just like if you could design something that would like, destroy a marriage from the get-go, it would be that right in custom. Um, I, think, I think what many Christians do in our, in our culture is they'll have all the girls together, but they'll have it you know, in the home of a parent or all the guys together and in the home of a parent or something like that so that it's all just you know, clean and good and fun and um, healthy and um, just an opportunity to rejoice and celebrate rather than to uh, bare minimum flirt with temptation. Okay, Chrysostom continues. Um, very top of 83, first full sentence there is where we'll start. For such a long time her father has striven, along with her mother, to protect the virgin, to keep her from speaking or hearing any of these words. He has arranged for private chambers, women's apartments, guards, doors, and locks. He has allowed her to go out only in the evening, to be seen only by members of the family. Have you overthrown all these precautions in one day? teaching her shamelessness by that, disgraceful, uh, by that disgraceful retinue and introducing corrupt thoughts into the soul of the bride? Do not the subsequent evils begin here? Is not this the beginning of childlessness and widowhood and untimely orphanhood? 
And then he goes on to explain what he means. When you invoke demons by your songs, etc., etc. So it's like, his point is, you could, I, I think this would be a good place to stop for the day. But the point is like, are you inviting Christ into your weddings by your rights or inviting the demons into your weddings by your rights? That's really the point and Chrysostom's take-home point. All right, until next week, the Lord be with you.